Welcome to Tom Rhodes Radio Smart Camp. Wow, today I have a doozy of an episode for you. Today's episode is about Lord Byron. Have you ever heard the name? What do you know about the guy? All I ever knew about Lord Byron was that he was the king of the romantic poets uh, and that he was kind of a debaucherous wild man, um, you know, kind of like the first rock star. But any biography you ever read about the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin and debaucherous behavior from wildly famous celebrities or musicians or artists, uh, you can pretty much throw all those books in the trash because Lord Byron takes the cake um, and fucks it too, pretty much. I think it, the, the, I think the best way to tell you, best thing to um, tell you right up front about Lord Byron is that no hole was safe around him. Um, this episode has been many months in preparation, uh, years, even decades. And um, I'll just go ahead and tell you the story up front, why I've always been fascinated by Lord Byron, or not fascinated by him, but that I just wanted to learn who this guy was. So my family is originally from Washington, D.C., and I think we were 10 years old. When we were 10 years old, we moved to Wilmington, North Carolina, and we lived in a housing development called King's Grant, and all of the streets were named after English writers. And my family and I lived on Lord Byron Road. And I always thought that was like a really cool, um, like how do you become a lord? How do you get a street in North Carolina named after you? I mean, what do you have to do? So um, all the things in my life that I've read and been fascinated about, he was a guy that I've always kept off in the distance that one day I'm gonna learn about Lord Byron. So one of my favorite hobbies and pastimes and sources of pleasure when I travel is to go to used bookstores. So through the years, <clears throat> I've picked up many books on Lord Byron. So right now at the beginning, let me just uh, do a very heartfelt, sincere commercial for some of my favorite bookstores um, that I, for, for the books that were the source of knowledge for today's episode. Uh, this book, Byron, The Years of Fame, by Peter Quinnell. I bought this at Acapella Books in Atlanta, Georgia, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, one of my favorite bookstores on the planet, Charlie Burns in Galway, Ireland. I bought Byron in Italy, also by Peter Quinnell. And it turns out that this book starts where Byron Years of Fame ends, which I didn't know when I brought these books to England. And then also from Charlie Burns, I got the selected poetry and prose of Byron. Um, I know this is probably definitely going to be more than a one episode uh, uh, podcast on the life of Lord Byron, just because the man's story is so epic. There's so much to tell. Like I said, I mean, just to make a joke, the guy, uh, no, no hole was safe around the guy. I mean, he fucked everything. Uh, a very interesting, you know, I mean, he, he, I mean, I'll tell you, I'll get in the ins and outs of his life, but I mean, just like, uh, he fucked his sister. What? 
Come on, don't give away the end of the story, Tom, right at the beginning. No, dear listener, that's not the end of the story. That's the middle of the story. But who does that? Who fucks his sister? Well, it was his half-sister, and, you know, there's a lot of things with Byron, and where, like, all these different books, and, you know, these Peter Quinnell books were written in, like, 1935. You know, he never comes out and says that Byron fucked his sister until, like, the very end of the book. And there's so much flowery English language, and I had to look up so many um, words like poetaster, which is someone who uh, writes bad poetry. Um, So many, uh, they dance around topics, and like all these different uh, excuses are are made for his behavior and things, but um, you're going to be blown away by this guy's life. I mean, he's, he... He was a revolutionary in the Greek War for Independence. What? What are you talking about? That's an English guy, right? Yeah, there's, there's so many elements. Uh, here's, a, here's a little um, paragraph from Wikipedia. Often described as the most flamboyant and notorious of the major romantics, Byron was considered a celebrity in his era, both for his success as a romantic poet and for his aristocratic excesses. That's also could sum up the the story of Byron's life, aristocratic excesses, which included huge debts, many sex scandals, numerous love affairs with both men and women in a time when bisexuality was considered a crime, as well as rumors of a scandalous, incestuous liaison with his half-sister. One of his lovers, Lady Caroline Lamb, summed him up in the famous phrase, mad, bad, and dangerous to know. So that line about him is famous, that he was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. But what Wikipedia doesn't tell you is that Lady Caroline Lamb lost her motherfucking head over this guy. Uh, She was married, you know, back in Victorian England, people, you know, it was very common for people to have affairs and lovers, as long as you didn't flaunt it and were out in the open about it. Uh, she was married to a dude, and she, I mean, like, like you know, Led Zeppelin uh, staying at a hotel, she, like, tried to get it. Byron, at all costs, she got into his life. Lady Caroline actually had to be dragged out of London by her family because she had made such a fool of herself over Lord Byron. And then later she comes back, turns up at a party where he's at, big fancy gathering, and she tries to commit suicide, uh, tries to cut her wrists at the party. Um, So many amazing, wild, crazy things happen in the life of Byron. I mean, this is just a taste of the story that I'm telling you at the beginning, Uh, the aperitif, if you will, before the meal. And um, Byron was very beautiful, and he had big, thick, full lips and he had black curly hair um but he was born with a club foot and he kind of dragged it when he walked uh and he learned how to do this little slide when he walked so that's the interesting thing and he had low self-esteem because of his club foot uh all of the names in this in the story also are are great you know like lord byron what a what a what a fascinating name and lady caroline lady blessington lady milbank Lady Melbourne, uh, and Byron 
poked most of them, just about all of them, even some of the older ladies. Um, he, he may have had a lame foot, but there wasn't nothing lame about that dick. And he really enjoyed, um, I mean, older women, younger women, boys, men. Um, the dude had an insatiable appetite for, uh, for sex, ladies and gentlemen. So, you know, it's almost like I had to read several books uh, to get at what was the story of Byron. And uh, this other book that I bought just last month, about three weeks ago when I was in Inverness, Scotland, um, great used bookstore there called Leakey's, uh, even though nothing is alphabetized. Um, it's a great old bookstore. And I wish you could smell the pages of this old book. It's so beautiful. This, is, um, this book is called Lord Byron, and it's by Peter Brent. And this is great. It looks like an eighth grade history book. It's, it's got like lots of pictures. And uh, from today's podcast, I will be reading um, mostly from this book. Um, so why don't we get down to it? Let's um, hear about the life of Lord Byron. Uh, I just spent one of the best two months of my life in England, Ireland, and Scotland opening up for my friend Reginald D. Hunter. We played at all these gorgeous old theaters all over England, and I read some excerpts from my Lord Byron books. <clears throat> and uh, it was pretty awesome to be able to do this, to play to intelligent theater audiences, and then also to tell them the story of, of the life of Lord Byron and read them some passages. So this was my project. There was a lot of long car rides all over England, and I would be reading my Lord Byron books in the back seat, and every once in a while I'd go, Jesus Christ! And everybody in the car were like, what happened? I'm like, he fucked his sister! And it was really cool. Everybody in the car for these two months was interested in Lord Byron because I was interested in it, and I was reading about his life. So let me have a sip of coffee, and let's get down to it. <clears throat> so... Nottingham, or as people from there call it, Nottingham, is in a province, an area called Nottinghamshire. And that's where the family home that Byron later inherits, uh, Newstead Abbey. And it was kind of like a, it looked like an old castle. You can go visit it today. That's where Byron is, is buried. Um, <clears throat> but he inherits this property and the title Lord Byron at a very young age. And the De Byron, D-E-B-U-R-U-N, different spelling. Uh, if the De Byron family were as supposed, the Norman ancestors of the Byrons, B-Y-R-O-N-S, little is known of their fortunes until Henry VIII. Yes, that Henry VIII. Uh, the turkey leg chewing, cutting off the head of wives who wouldn't give him a male heir. Uh, that notorious slob, uh, Henry VIII. You know, um, when I was in England, we would have these wonderful film festivals. Like we watched one night uh, back at Reginald D. Hunter's house, we watched uh, Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, which was great. And it was dueling. And, uh, and then we watched this other film, I think it's called A Thousand Nights of Anne, which was about Anne Boleyn, who was married to Henry VIII and got her head cut off, and Richard Burton, 
plays Henry VIII. And I never knew anything about Richard Burton other than the fact that he was overly tanned and drank too much and was married to Elizabeth Taylor. But he was brilliant in this film as Henry VIII. Anyway, there's another little side project for your, uh, your learning and viewing pleasure. So, little is known of the family fortune until Henry VIII granted Newstead Abbey in Nottinghamshire to Sir John Byron, his bastard son, John. So this is the bastard son of Henry VIII, where the Byron family lineage comes from. So his bastard son, John, knighted by Queen Elizabeth and distinguished from his father by the title Little Sir John with the Great Beard, was well known even in those self-indulgent days for the scale of his entertaining. And these people like to party, and they like to get it on and throw um, big, crazy orgies and whatnot. Um, Lord Byron's immediate ancestors continued this tradition of extravagant behavior. It was his granduncle, the fifth lord, and not the poet, who was widely known as the wicked Lord Byron. He killed a neighbor, William Chaworth, in a duel over a trivial disagreement. He built on a lake at Newstead a small castle in which it was believed he and his cronies took part in unspeakable orgies. Does this book have your attention yet? This is the dude's family. Other rumors about him were more specific, that he had shot his coachman, for example, and thrown his body in the coach beside his wife and driven the carriage himself. Predictably, predictably, his wife left him and his son ran off with a cousin. His brother, who was Byron's direct grandfather, was a sailor so notorious for attracting storms that he became known as Foulweather Jack, having married, as the Byrons tended to, a cousin. He seemed to have attracted matrimonial storms with the same frequency. Apparently seeing no contradiction between his vows of conjugal fidelity and his determination to maintain and even extend his reputation as a rake. Now, a rake was like a womanizer, a a skirt chaser. Um, uh, So anyway, he didn't want to give up that uh, small little habit. So his son, the poet's father, seems to have been reasonably faithful, faithful to his wife, but in 1784, she died while giving birth to Augusta. And this is Byron's half-sister that he's later going to have sex with. And it's going to be a big scandal. Paradoxically, the, one, the only one of her children to survive. So the next spring, Mad Jack, that's Lord Byron's father. So everybody was kind of crazy in Lord Byron's family. And he kind of felt that like his, his family was cursed, that there was this doom over him, and that his family was cursed, and it whatever, it's romanticized as the source of his melancholy and uh, self-hatred. But anyway, his father, Mad Jack, still on the right side of 30, appeared among the clustering heiress hunters at Bath. Uh, Bath was a resort town in England where um, uh, the richest went, you know, fortune hunting in the marriage market. In a very short time, practiced as he was, he had come across and run down his query. 
a rather plain but very rich young lady named Catherine Gordon. In May of that year, 1785, she married Jack Gordon. Her ancestors, too, seem to have been a rather robust collection. (laughs) What a funny way to describe a colorful family. Hey, your family's kind of a robust collection. Her ancestors, too, seem to have been a rather robust collection. Their eccentricities, at least as great as those of the Byrons, though displayed in the more open-handed manner common among the reavers and robber barons who thieved, rustled, and raped along the Scottish border. Herself an orphan, Catherine had been brought up in strict Calvinist gloom by her grandmother, a woman who mitigated the darkness of ignorance by the spurious glitter of superstition. Wow. I think they're talking about religion and maybe some other voodoo shit. Catherine seems to have had a strong tendency towards manic depression, her periods of hysteria and fury being divided by bouts of introspective melancholy. And that's basically what Byron had too. And then his mom was kind of nuts, so um, that paints a very important picture in his life. Although she was shrewd in some ways and by no means stupid, she had little education and so none of the stability that a genuine depth of cultivation might have given her. Lord Byron was born on January 22, 1788. The boy was born lame. His own later secretiveness gave some zest to the controversy which followed his fame, wherever it was discussed, both during his lifetime and for a century after it. Had he truly a club foot? The answer seems to be that he truly had. A special shoe was designed for him by John Hunter, a famous surgeon of the day, but the doctor was firm in his opinion that the condition could not be cured, and the deformity in Byron's right foot, which almost certainly determined so many of his later attitudes and actions, never was cured, though attempts were made to do so, some very painful. Nevertheless, the boy learned to accommodate himself to his condition, at least superficially so that in the end, only those pastimes which involved an extreme lightness of foot proved beyond him. There's a sort of wildness that one senses in this household, the special madness which perhaps every family generates in its own way. God damn, I love that sentence. The special madness which perhaps every family generates in its own way. Mrs. Byron veered in her relations with her son from vituperation to kisses. So this is Lord Byron's mom. She veered from vituperation. 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 Did you say vituperation? Vituperation. Vituperation means a sustained and bitter railing and condemnation. So she was constantly condemning him and railing him at him or covering him with kisses. It was one or the other. And then also she gave him a lot of grief uh, and stress over his club foot. Mrs. Viren veered in her relations with her son from vituperation to kisses swooping from one emotion to the other with almost Slavonic abandon. In her loving moods, she would smother him with endearments and caresses, 
in her furies, attack him with insults about his lameness and his supposed similarity to his dissolute father. In the background lurked Agnes Gray, eternal damnation at her beck and call, while at the center the young Byron stalked, already proud, demanding, self-absorbed, and oversensitive, conscious of the barrier his lameness could make between himself and the world. Agnes Gray and he, out walking one day, were greeted by a passing nurse with the remark, What a pretty boy Byron is. What a pity he has such a leg. Outraged, the child struck at her with his toy whip, ordering her not to speak of it. When he was five, the boy was sent to his first school, a poverty-stricken establishment not far from where he lived. The contrast between the aristocracy of his origins and the plebeian nature of his surroundings became starker the following year. For in Corsica, a cannonball ended the life of William Byron, grandson of the wicked lord. This made George Byron, that's our dude, by the way, Lord Byron, his real name is George Gordon Byron. So imagine, this cannonball kills his cousin in Corsica, ending the life of William Byron, grandson of the wicked lord, and made George Gordon heir presumptive to the barony and its estate of Newstead Abbey. By then, however, he had also moved up the educational ladder, becoming a pupil at Aberdeen Grammar School. That's cool. I was just in Aberdeen, Scotland last month, and uh, that's pretty amazing to think that that's where he was at school when his entire life and fortune changes, and he goes from just a schmuck to being um, a guy with some property in a pretty badass castle. More importantly, this is my favorite part, more importantly, he had discovered books. From now on, certainly throughout his youth, he was to read with omnivorous, insatiable delight, ingesting history, tales of travel, classics, translations, novels, and accounts of great deeds and battles, all at enormous speed and with precocious intensity. Knowles' Turkish history was perhaps especially important, for as he said, I believe it had made much influence on my subsequent wish to visit the Levant, that's Syria, in that area, and gave perhaps the oriental coloring which is to be observed in my poetry. Yet poetry itself did not attract him. On the contrary, he could never bear to read any poetry, whatever, without disgust and reluctance. Interesting. Whatever drew him more, as was not surprising, given the influence of both mother and nurse, was the Bible. Even the Psalms acknowledged poems, though they were, did not deter him. The story of Cain and Abel already fascinated him. The idea of evil done under compulsion, of the man cursed, a fugitive and a vagabond, shalt thou be in the earth, seemed even at that age to awake a strange resonance within him. Well, a fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. Perhaps he felt already the beginnings of that certainty of doom which dominated him, 
to his horror and delight and throughout most of his life. Another strand in that dark tapestry was woven in when he was around nine years old. Agnes Gray left the Byrons. In her steed, her younger sister May entered the household. May, who remained in the household until Byron was 12, was a devout and Bible-quoting as her sister. Not only that, she ordered the boy's life by beating so violent that in later words, that in the later words of Hansen, the Byron's London agent, his bones sometimes ached from it. And there was another element in May's character. Much later, in his detached thoughts, Byron wrote, My passions were developed early, so early that few would believe me if I were to state the period and the facts which accompanied it. For in Hansen's words, when Byron was nine, a free Scotch girl used to come to bed him and play tricks with his person. Wow. So she's beating him violently, quoting the Bible, and then coming to his bed and playing with his dick and having sex with him. Wow. I mean, you know, maybe that was why uh, he had such loose morals when it came to sexuality. Who knows what? But imagine what that would do to the mind of a nine-year-old boy. Thus aroused, however, Byron discovered that he was only on the periphery of her sensual world, she having in those circumstances to stand at the center of his. For Hansen reported that she brought all sorts of company of the very lowest description into his apartments. Wow. So she's not only like coming to fuck this nine-year-old boy, she's bringing in trash from the countryside and banging him in front of him. Imagine how confused he was. I mean, like, you know, he's trying to keep up with this adult sexually, and then whatever confusion or feelings or who knows what uh, he, he experienced, um, then he's got to watch her screwing dirty men from the countryside. Wow. Thus he had not only to learn feeling and response to cope with the frightening excitement of an adult and to match it as best as he could with his own, he had also to watch that effort spurned, that gift nullified, as in his presence May entertained her uninhibited friends. Wow. It was not uncommon until well into this century and this book was written in the last century, for the youths of the middle and upper classes to be sexually initiated by older servants. Wow. So the rich old money families of England, a lot of these people were losing their virginities with older servants? Interesting. One only has to read the histories of sexual development in Havelock's Ellis's psychology of sex, to realize that this was the case. What harm this did and whether it outweighed the benefits is hard to say. What is certain is that coupled as it was with both Calvinistic prohibitions of carnality and the repeated violence to enforce them, Byron's initiation does much to explain his subsequent sexual confusion. That, beyond all this, stood only his irascible, unstable mother, meant that he had nowhere to turn for reassurance. The damage done to his emotions had no one to repair it, and it never was repaired. 
Perhaps equally significant in determining the shape of his life was that when he was 10, his grandfather died and he became Lord Byron. Mrs. Byron at once brought her son back to England from Aberdeen, Scotland. Arriving at Newstead Abbey, the family seat near Nottingham, Nottingham, with a capital of 75 pounds realized on the sale of her Broad Street furniture. She had hoped for an income of 2,000 pounds a year, but instead learned from Hansen that the estate would, was chained by the old lord's debts. Most of the furniture had been taken by creditors. Cattle had been given the entrance as a buyer. Okay. So things were pretty shabby. So they, they, they inherit this nice piece of property, but it's run down. B-Y-R-E. God damn it. Why does motherfucking Webster's give you commercials? You have to click away when you're trying to record a motherfucking podcast. Buyer. Buyer. B-Y-R-E. Buyer. Buyer. A buyer is a cow barn. Hey, uh... Peter Brent, the author of this book. Why the fuck didn't you just say cow barn? Then I could have avoided that. Webster's advertisement. Most of the furniture had been taken by creditors. Cattle had been given the entrance hall as a buyer. The farm buildings were tumbling into ruin. The forests had been decimated. If she had expected a life of ease and fortune, she was quickly disillusioned. Yet she and especially her son, fell in love with Newstead. It stood romantic Gothic and sturdy Tudor beside its lakes, within its wide parkland, framed by the dark green of the late summer trees. For a boy whose imagination had already been quickened by a thousand tales of ancient battles, it must have seemed a paradise, especially after the constraints of Aberdeen. It was decided despite Hansen's doubts that the family could live at Newstead, at least until someone could be found to rent it. Okay, so um, I'm in Las Vegas at the Rio Casino, um, performing at the Comedy Cellar, and I need to run downstairs and perform and make people laugh. Maybe many years from now, someone from the Rio Casino Hotel will hear this podcast and they will have special Lord Byron party nights. Okay, I'll be right back after I go make some people laugh. And we are back. Hey, my shows were great. Thanks for asking. I'm actually performing at the Rio Casino in Las Vegas right now. So in the future, when you're driving through Las Vegas and you see the Rio Casino, off in the distance, you can think to yourself, what happens there? And then you can remember, that's where Tom Rhodes recorded his Lord Byron podcasts. Okay, so um, to recap what we were talking about, um, Byron's mother was um, uh, kind of a lunatic. She stressed him out. She gave him uh, a lot of unnecessary um, self-consciousness about his club foot. I mean, like, if you had a club foot, you'd already feel shitty enough about it without your mom constantly reminding you uh, hey, you little bastard, you got a dumbass club foot. Um, can you lift your club foot when you walk, please? Um, 
Anywho, so Hansen, uh, the family accountant, whatever you want to call this guy, um, a boarding school seemed to Hansen the only remedy for the damage this relationship was doing to Byron, and that relationship was with his mother. So Hansen felt like Byron needed to get away from his mother. Um, in one of the other books I read, Byron's mother had actually made sacrifices <clears throat> and raised the money for him to go to Harrow, this rich kid boarding school uh, of England. It's a very famous school where the richy rich go. Um, so, you know, she was instrumental also, but um, uh, Byron became popular at Harrow. Everything kind of turned around in his life for him. I guess he's isolated and, you know, living in his own brain and, you know, he's getting molested by um, one of the maids of the house, all this different shit that, that befell him as a child. And then everything really comes together for him at Harrow. He fought, uh, he fought constantly. One thing he said that his youth was, um, was very violent. So I think he, he took a lot of shit for his club foot and he basically had to fight all the time. Um, but fortunately, the guy loved boxing and um, thought a man should be able to throw knuckles once in a while. Uh, he played a fair game of cricket. Um, the other book said that he was a very average cricket player, but um, this is an important footnote in the guy's life. He was one of the Harrow 11 in their first match against Eton in 1805. And I know Eton is the other, those are the two big rich kid schools of England, like um, uh, Prince Charles and Prince Harry and all those guys. Uh, I believe Eton was the school that they went to. So this is a big deal. So uh, he was one of the Harrow 11 in their first match against Eton in 1805. Though according to another member of the team, he had a runner. His lameness impeding him so much. Okay, well, the club foot is again a problem. I guess it wasn't just his mom who thought um, dude should lift his club foot. Above all, he swam, having taken several years before with a pleasure one can imagine to an element in which he could start level with the rest of the world. Okay, so anything not involved in dragging your big-ass club foot around, he excelled at. He began to write verses, began to spend long days dreaming hours, withdrawn from friends, shadowed by the elms of Harrow Churchyard. Uh, his house that he inherited, Newstead, was rented to Lord Grey de Ruthine, de Ruthine. And Mrs. Byron, his mom, moved to Southwell, also near Nottingham, Nottingham, as they say, where in a house called Burbage Manor, Byron joined her for the summer. Quickly bored, however, he moved back to Newstead, established himself in the caretaker's lodge, and fell in love. He had been in love before, the first time before he was 10, with a girl named Mary Duff. In 1813, he was to write in his diary, how very odd that I should have been so utterly devoutly fond of that girl at an age when I could neither feel passion nor know the meaning of the word. I recollect all we said to each other, all our caresses, her features, my restlessness. A little later, he had fallen in love again with his cousin, Margaret Parker, 
who was, as he was to write in his detached thoughts, inspired his first dash into poetry. She had been, he added, one of the most beautiful and evanescent beings, her dark eyes, her long eyelashes, her completely Greek cast of face and figure. I do not recollect scarcely anything equal to the transparent beauty of my cousin. I could not sleep, could not eat, I could not rest. It was the torture of my life to think of the time which must elapse before we could meet again. Being usually about 12 hours of separation. But I was a fool then, and not much wiser now. He had been 12 then. A year or so later, Margaret was dead. A blow the boy felt pondered on, then drew into himself as though to nourish his more melancholy moods. This time, the girl he fell in love with was the daughter of a neighbor, the descendant of his grand-uncle's victim, Mary Chaworth. You remember his crazy uncle, the original, the wicked Lord Byron, uh, who was his great-uncle, had murdered a neighbor over a trivial matter in a duel. And that was great about that movie Barry Lyndon, the Kubrick flick. Was there? It was back in the dueling societies, and um, back then, you know, somebody... You know, I mean, imagine bumping into somebody at Starbucks and you go, hey, asshole. And you're like, hey, fuck you, asshole. Well, I challenge you to a duel. Let's meet at the high school football field in an hour. And um, we'll flip a coin to see who gets to uh, shoot a, a, a lead bullet into someone else. Interesting times. So um, imagine the guy falls in love, Byron, with this neighbor girl who is in the descendant of someone who was murdered by his very own descendant. So Mary Chaworth, so profound was the fall that nothing would induce him to go back to Harrow when the summer was over. I cannot get him to return to school, wailed Mrs. Byron in a letter to Hanson. He has no indisposition that I know of, but love, desperate love. Miss Chaworth, for her part, Already engaged to a neighbor, seems for a while to have been flattered by the distracted state of this good-looking, if slightly corpulent, 15-year-old schoolboy. Uh, corpulent means fat. I learned that about a month ago, driving around England. Had to look it up. If nothing else, yeah, so he was, he was portly. He was kind of a, um, uh, he, he always, um, was kind of a little overweight. Um, I mean, the guy had a life of indulgence. But it's interesting that he, uh, coming up in his life, he's going to be very conscious of that, and he's going to exercise and diet like a mofo, which, um, uh, you know, how many people were, were thinking of that back then? But um, I guess he liked the ladies, and he wanted to strike a uh, dashing figure. Uh, Miss Chatwork, for her part, already engaged to a neighbor, seems for a while. Yeah, we got that part, Tom. If nothing else, at least her vanity was excited. But one night she apparently said to her maid, What? Me care for that lame boy? Byron overheard her, or was, or was told of it, and, wounded to fury, rushed out of the house. 
Okay, so um, here's a little footnote that I'm not going to tell you later, but I want you to know now. So Byron lost his mind for this, this, this woman when he was home for the summer. He wouldn't return to school. She comments on his lame foot. You know, how could I ever love someone that had a, a lame foot? Are you kidding? And, uh, and Byron, already very sensitive, of course, you know, he was crushed by uh, comments from strangers and people he didn't know. So imagine how destroyed he would have been over this woman that he completely loved. So here's the little footnote I'm going to tell you now and not later. Years later, when Byron is completely famous and everyone in the world is, is knocking themselves over, men want to be near him, want to be his friend, and women are lining up to uh, just even have the chance at taking a peek at his knob. Um, Mary Chaworth sends him letters and says, oh, I didn't realize back then what a genius you would become. So... <laughs> and then he corresponded with her and everything. But, um, you know, it, it's funny when uh, you, you you have a magnificent person right in front of you. Well, I mean, he was, I don't know if he was magnificent. The guy was kind of freaky, right? Um, but, you know, it just goes to show you that um, uh, star fuckers and people impressed with notoriety um, is timeless and has always been around. And um, a little bit of fame will make you forget a dude who's got a big, goofy-ass club foot. That he was not over-familiar with homosexuality. Oh, there it is again. I mean, how much, you know. All right, I mean. Mary's, Mary Chaworth's butthole might have remained safe uh, because of these circumstances. That he was not over-familiar with homosexuality or that it, clearer manifestations frightened and disgusted him at this stage in his life seems to be shown in his precipitant flight from his beloved Newstead where he had remained as a companion to Lord Grey the young tenant there for it seems more likely so Lord Grey's renting Newstead and Byron goes to live in the servants quarters even though he owns the property. Lord Grey himself, only 23, made physical advances to his good-looking young companion in a manner sufficiently gross to bewilder and alarm him. He left there telling no one why, but repeating his determination never to have anything to do with Lord Grey again. I am not reconciled to Lord Grey, and I never will be, he wrote to his sister Augusta. But he added that my reasons for ceasing that friendship are such as I cannot explain, not even to you. It was in this final year to Harrow that he returned, not to its formal institutionalized side, but to the comradeship and admiration it now afforded him. At 17 years of age, he was one of its leading lights, a young man in the world of boys, looked up to and respected for his disdain of its authority he led a small rebellion against the headmaster appointed to succeed the retiring Dr. Jury. He played cricket. It was the year he was picked against Eton. He sang at the nearby tavern. He dazzled at the end of term speech day. Having found a place, having wrestled respect from those about him, perhaps like many school heroes, 
he was afraid of the colder world outside. So he becomes everything. PB's popular, people love him. Uh, he's like very, you know, one of the most popular guys at Harrow. And then years later, <clears throat> in this, uh, these, the, these writings that he called Detached Thoughts, he says, when I first went up to college, it was a new and heavy-hearted scene for me. It was one of the deadliest and heaviest feelings of my life to feel that I no longer, I was no longer a boy. From that moment, I began to grow old in my own esteem. And in my esteem, age is not estimable. Estimable. Okay, so he goes to Cambridge. From there, all kinds of shit happens. He makes some of the, his... Um, his greatest lifelong friends at Cambridge, uh, Hobhouse, uh, was probably his best friend for life. This guy, Scrope Davies, who was a wild man and a gambler. Um, where is the Cambridge? Okay, this book is fucking me up. Now we got to go over to Byron, Years of Fame. Um... Okay, so he had, where is it? The following autumn, he went up to Trinity College, Cambridge, where he met and formed a close relationship with the younger John Edelston. John Edelston was uh, in the choir, and um, Byron first fell in love with his boys. There we go. All right, here we Just keep reading the highlights for your people, Tom. We'll get to it. Okay. He had, for the most of his life so far, been a rather portly youth. When he was 18, he weighed over 200 pounds, almost dangerously heavy for someone not 5 feet 9 inches tall. I wear seven waistcoats and a great coat, run and play at cricket in, the, in this dress. Yeah, so he's like, he wants to be hot and sweat, till quite exhausted by excessive perspiration. No suppers or breakfast, only one meal a day. This regiment produced results, however, for he added that my clothes have taken have been taken in nearly half a yard. He saw his future at this time as in politics and thought of himself as an orator. His title would give him automatic entry to the legislature when he came of age, and he intended, once in the House of Lords, to speak for the more liberal factions of the Whig Party. Later in 1807, he became a member of the Whig Club at Cambridge, and those oratorical ambitions, Hansen enthusiastically encouraged him. He forged friendships while a student, which, although usually less passionate than those he had formed at Harrow, lasted the whole of his life. The most important of these was with the son of a Bristol MP, John Cam Hobhouse. But an attachment very different from these was in some ways more significant than either. Byron met and became passionately involved with a young choirist, John Edelston, whom he heard singing in the college chapel the first autumn he was in Cambridge. It was, Byron later said, a violent though pure love and passion. Yet it was certainly a love affair, 
the first of many such in Byron's life, not all of which were to remain in the technical sense pure. That means he got him in the doo-doo hole. If in the unknown layers of his psyche he hated women, it would not have been surprising, and from one point of view, his life can be taken as a long odyssey of revenge against them. Wow, what a fucking interesting thought, and probably very true. The family configuration of, dem- of a demanding mother, an absent father, is of course the classical one for the molding of a homosexual. Wow, when was this fucking book written? I'm sorry, I gotta take a peek. Where is the... 1974. All right, motherfucker. Wow. Uh, I thought I thought this was book was written. What an observation from a 1974 person writing this. The family configuration of a demanding mother and absent father is, of course, the classical one for the molding of a homosexual. <laughs> it's it's uh, well, it's so fucked up that the. Um, that uh, they would think that's that's all it took. Thus, a part of Byron's apparent greed for women may also have been rooted in the energy of his flight from men, may at times even have been a deliberate mask to deceive the world. Another molded grimace, that of the indiscriminate but heterosexual Lecher, behind which the more loving but homosexual aspect of the true Byron could hide. Wow. It's interesting. In the summer, he was in London. I swam in the Thames from Lambeth through the two bridges, Westminster and Blackfriars, a distance of three miles, and busy with a new poem on Bosworth Field. In this, he was encouraged by the early, if moderate, success of his first volume of poems he brought out for public distribution, Hours of Idleness. That was the name of it. In every bookseller's I see my own name. I say nothing, but enjoy my fame in secret. Mm-hmm-hmm. Uh, the satirical poem. Yeah, so he got ravaged. Hours of idleness. He got, he got ripped by these uh, critics. And then he wrote this other satirical poem called English Barge and Scotch Reviewers. Came out in March 1809. By that time, Byron was permanently installed in London. His Cambridge years to be perpetuated by the friendships he had formed there, rather than by the knowledge or the qualifications he had gained. So the most that he got out of Cambridge were all these friendships. The obligatory degree he went back for in the summer of 1808 meant much less to him than the opinion held of him by Hobhouse, Matthews, and the rest of his close associates. In his memory, Cambridge was to be notable only for their sakes and for that of Edelston, the choir boy he got in the doo-doo hole. Uh, 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 um. He wrote to Hobhouse, I am buried in an abyss of sensuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was settling a score because he got so many bad reviews 
for hours of idleness. Prepare for rhyme. I'll publish right or wrong. Fools are my theme. Let satire be my song. <laughs> I guess that was kind of like a rap tape takedown. That was like uh, Tupac calling out Biggie. English bards and Scotch reviewers had come pouring out of him a lava-like retort to some of the criticism to which hours of idleness had finally been subjected. He made Geoffrey the editor of Edinburgh Review, that stern arbiter of literary acceptability, his especial butt. It was only just over a year that this journal had written of his first volume. So far from hearing, with any degree of surprise, that very poor verses were written by a youth from his leaving school to his leaving college, inclusive. We really believe this to be the most common of all occurrences, that it happens in the life of nine men in ten who are educated in England, and that the tenth man writes better verse than Lord Byron. So that's what this cock, Geoffrey, from the Edinburgh Review said. Although Byron had now taken his seat in the House of Lords, he was already planning a voyage east. He put Hanson under pressure to find the necessary money. Then with several of his friends, he retired to Newstead, where a series of slightly overheated evenings, they dressed as friars and Matthews, dubbed Byron the Abbot, gave rise to excited rumors in the locality. What are they doing up there? Dressing like priests and having orgies? A lot of strange shit happened at Newstead through the years, and um, Byron kept that tradition going. Perhaps more interesting was that Byron had taken as his page the handsome young Robert Rushton, another in that series of good-looking lads upon whom Byron expended some of his most sincere affection. By bullying Hanson and borrowing from both users and friends, Scrope Davies, lucky at the gaming tables, lent him nearly 5,000 pounds. Byron finally put himself into a financial posture to depart. Hobhouse was the only one of his friends who accepted his invitation to accompany him. There is a mysterious urgency in Byron's determination to leave the country. I will never live in England if I can avoid it, he wrote to Hanson. Why? Why must remain a secret? That is strange in a man little given to secrecy and may refer to some homosexual entanglement, or at least temptation in any event. He had his wish, as he and Hobhouse stood on the deck of the Lisbon packet and watched Foulmouth and the coast of England fade into hazy summer and the past. So, you know what? I think that's a good time... To end this episode, um, this is definitely, there's more Byron coming, and this is the poem that he wrote. A packet was basically like a cargo ship. They would move livestock, uh, and then people who didn't have a lot of money to travel could travel with cargo. It's, it was a cheap way to, to travel back then. And Byron is off with Hobhouse, and this is, Poem. This is from the selected poetry and prose of Byron. Now at length we're off for Turkey. Lord knows when we shall come back. Breezes foul and tempests murky. 
may unship us in a crack. But since life at most a jest is, as philosophers allow, still to laugh by far the best is, then laugh on as I do now. Laugh at all things, great and small, sick or well, at sea or shore. While we're quaffing, let's have laughing. Who the devil cares for more? Some good wine, and who would lack it, even on board the Lisbon packet? Okay, is that enough for today? All right, well, um, I... Fuck. Fuck it, let's keep going, man. Before journeying on, he sent Rushton home, insisting that Turkey was in too dangerous a state for boys to enter. The absolute ruler of Albania was a white-bearded tyrant named Ali Pasha, whose domains extended over Macedonia and western Greece. His capital was at Janina, and there Byron and Hobhouse arrived on October 5th to find that quarters had already been prepared for them in what is now Byron Street. It's funny, now in Janina they have Byron Street. Amidst no common pomp, the despot sat. He was to write in Child Harold's Pilgrimage and to match such high and... So Child Harold's Pilgrimage is the, is the, the poem that made him famous in 1812. And so going off on this adventure is where he writes, he starts writing about, he writes what will be the, the work that makes him famous. So in Janina is where he starts it. After two further visits to Ali Pasha, Byron returned to Janina, and there, on the last day of October, sat down to write the opening lines of his long poem, Child Harold's Pilgrimage. And people lost their minds because they thought that Byron was the character, and he, and he partly was, but it was, you know, he was cynical, he's traveling, it was, it was youth, and, um, and partly was the reason everyone wanted to have sex with the guy, was because of the character he writes about in Child Harold's Pilgrimage. Three days later, Byron was on the move again, traveling on Ali's ships. This soon found itself gripped helplessly in one of the squalls which blow up so abruptly in those seas. Fletcher yelled after his wife. The Greeks called on all the saints, the Muslims, Muslims on Allah. The captain burst into tears. Boy, that's not a good sign. He wrote to his mother and added that he himself, wrapped in his Albanian cloak, lay down on the deck to await the worst. This not occurring, Byron and his companions changed ships and by November 20th had reached Missolonghi, which is, that's the town in Greece he's going to end up dying later in his life. Um, I don't give a fuck about a spoiler alert. I'll tell you where the motherfucker died. I won't tell you how he died, but I'll tell you where he died. A dull town on a marshy lagoon, it made no discernible impression on the poet if for a moment premonition stirred his skin or caused a hesitation in his blood, he did not record it. Okay, well, Peter Brent giving away the, the ending too. On the way to Athens, Byron and his party stayed at Vastitsa with the governor of the district, a wealthy Greek, Greek named Andreas Londos who, although a servant of the Turks, see, the Turks and the Ottoman Empire controlled Greece at that time, jumped up and with tears in his 
eyes at the mention of a Greek nationalist who some two decades earlier had led a revolt against Turkish rule. Was this the first time that Byron understood the depth of hatred in which the Greeks held for their Turkish overlords? The desperation with which they longed to be free of the bonds of the decaying yet still strong Ottoman Empire. Somehow, in retrospect, the moment seemed significant. This young wealthy man, correct, charged by the Turks with responsibility, an example of cooperation between master and mastered, suddenly upright, his eyes bright with tears, his hands clasped in passionate greeting for no more than the name of a dead patriot, and watching him, the English traveler, ready to be moved by a cause rooted in liberty and in a culture not his own. Rise up, O Greeks, Londos sang. By the first week of March, he and Hobhouse were in Smyrna on the mainland of Asia Minor. That's the mainland of Greece that's connected to Europe. Here, waiting to continue his journey, he finished the second canto of Child Harold's Pilgrimage. God damn, I want to go to Smyrna because the beach I grew up loving and going to in, in Florida is New Smyrna Beach. And it takes its name from Smyrna, which is in the Bible, because some biblical shit happened, and then that's where Byron wrote the second canto. Oh, Child's Herald. Okay. I begin to find out that nothing but virtue will do in this damned world. I am tolerably sick of vice. On his return, he added he would leave off wine and carnal company and betake myself to politics and decorum. He wore a scarlet coat, richly embroidered with gold. His features were remarkably delicate and would have given him a feminine appearance, but for the manly expression of his fine blue eyes. Taking off his feathered cocked hat, he revealed curly auburn hair, which improved in no small degree the uncommon beauty of his face. It was Hobhouse who had come to the end of his wanderings and was going back to England. Perhaps because of their imminent parting, Byron seemed very depressed during the, this voyage. He, it may be, however, that he was brooding over news that he had from England, where there were not only continuing problems with creditors, but where his erstwhile Edelston had been accused of indecency. And you could uh, he, he got caught letting someone stick him in a doo-doo hole. And back then, you know, you could life in prison. Uh, I mean, that's what destroyed Oscar Wilde. He had to do hard labor. I mean, but they could also hang you for being um, gay. This black ending to a pure, if passionate, attachment might well have raised strange guilts and specters in his mind. For there seems little question that the more conservative, shockable Hobhouse had to some extent forced Byron to limit his social and sexual experimentation. He has not the remotest grasp of the real reason which induced Lord Byron to prefer having no Englishman immediately and constantly near him, suggests that he had a clear idea of the areas of darkness, inner and outer, which Byron preferred to explore alone. So if there were no English people around, there was no one to cast an eye of judgment 
on this guy. Doing whatever he pleased. The place they traveled on to was Tripolitza, where Veli Pasha, Ali Pasha's son, held court. Son proved to have the same taste as father, and Baiwan was rather embarrassed, though flattered too. So apparently both of the Pashas, father and son, wanted Byron's doo-doo hole. As the long-bearded Veli held his hand, put his arm around his waist, and offered him a variety of gifts. I guess Byron was just a lovable dude. Everybody lost their mind for this guy. And he had big, curled-up, puffy, kissable lips. And he was smart. He hoped that we should be on good terms, not for a few days, but for life, Byron wrote to Hobhouse. The probable reason for this choice was his old favorite, Niccolo Gerard. This is the young boy that he falls in love with in Greece or Malta? Or no, he, he, he has these, anyway, he sets up this kid being educated in Malta. Uh, and then he, he leaves him money in his will. So Byron um, wasn't interested in the Pashas because he already had this other kid that he loved. The probable reason for this choice was his old favorite, Niccolo Girard, who was one of six pupils living in the monastery in the care of the abbot. All six of the boys seems to have romped in a distinctly flirtatious manner with Byron. He called them his sylphs. So Byron's living in this monastery, screwing his brains out. These young boys at the foot of the Acropolis in Athens. But it was Niccolo to whom he was especially drawn, needing to involve himself, perhaps happy to feel love in an uncomplicated way. As Byron told Hobhouse, Niccolo had said that he would follow him across the world and that they should not only live but die together. The latter I hope to avoid, as much as the former, as he pleases. He was, he added, vastly happy and childish. Confirmed by another's affection, his existence and lovability thus certified, Byron was always happy, especially, perhaps, when the circumstances reproduced the easy, unrepeatable passions of his harrow days. The monastery must, for a while, have seemed like his old school, with Niccolo to play the part of a Claire or Long. He swam daily at Piraeus, returning from there one day. He was able to prevent the execution of a Turkish girl caught while making love by order of the governor of Athens. She had been sewn into a sack and was about to be thrown into the sea. Bribery effective where threats produced mere sullenness saved the girl, and Byron sent her away to Tebes. So Byron had to, to bribe the governor and these men who were about to kill this woman for, for making love so that, that, that they don't kill her and throw her in the sewed-up sack into the sea. There is a suggestion that he perhaps knew the girl better than he admitted. In any case, he used the incident in his later poem, The Gaior although he was still writing, had told his mother that scribbling was a disease I hope to cure myself of. What a funny thing to say for a guy to make his fame and living from writing. Hey, man, I think that's... Um, and this, this adventure that he took 
with Hobhouse to Turkey and Greece. He here. Let me. This is from the. Let me read you this one last thing. This is this is this is from Years of Fame, which we'll get in the next episode. So Greece was the land of friendship, of adventure. All his life it was to remain associated in Byron's mind with the idea of youth, that precious gift which, even at the age of 23, seemed to be slipping away from him like a prodigal's fortune. Greece implied the absence of responsibilities, indolent and yet ambitious, burdened with a very keen sense of the consideration that was due to a man of title and ancient lineage, acutely apprehensive of the criticism to which life in the great world would expose him. He shrank from the prospect of existence in England. He did not pretend that he looked forward to seeing his mother, to whom his attitude at the best of times was frigidly dutiful. He was returning, he told Mrs. Byron, in a letter written at sea, with much the same feelings which prevailed on my departure, indifference. There's the thing that he says about his mom. Anyway. Ah, that's it. So, he, okay, so now he's returning back to England. I owe her respect. She had like, we'll go on about this. I owe her respect as a son, but I renounce her as a friend. The guy did not care for his mommy. Anyway, that is uh, part one of this epic Lord Byron uh, series for the podcast. Uh, uh, and, and this will be youth and adventure. And then when we come back on the next episode, it will all be... I mean, imagine how wild this guy's screwing everyone and everything... You know, he had love rejected a few times, but um, if this guy did this much screwing and partying and inspired writing before he was famous, imagine what his life is going to be like when he's got money and fame. And that story is coming up on the next episode. And uh, it's always a beautiful day when you learn something, and I hope today enriched you with wisdom and laughter. We love knowledge! Thank you, Tom. But he fucked his sister. Who does that? Shalom, amigos e amigas. And long may you drag your lame club foot. Tom Rhodes, you're a funny man. Tom Rhodes, you're an international comedian. Tom Rhodes, karate kick, baby, oh yeah. You're a groovy dude You go all around the world Telling jokes to all of the people You are an international comedian You're funny to everybody in every single country in the world Tom Rhodes, I like you very much talented and very wonderful Tom Rhodes you're the best guy in the world I wanna be your friend you should call me sometime here is my phone number 603-644-0048 yeah 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 Tom Rhodes you're an international comedic sensation Tom Rhodes I like to listen
listen to your podcast. Tom Rhodes, you're the best man to ever walk on the earth. 